Thank you, Jeff. Good morning, Kaleo Community Church. Hope you enjoyed our time of song and praise. And Happy New Year to everyone. I hope you had a blessed New Year. I'm sure it was uh, quite a bit different than usual, or maybe it was the same. Uh, we're not big New Year's Eve uh, celebrators, I guess I should say. Uh, but I hope you enjoyed uh, bringing in the new year. And one of the things I like to always remind um, everyone is we always seem to uh, have the expectation or inclination that we need to set some type of goals, uh, set some type of resolution. And uh, I just want to encourage you to not um, set yourself up for failure, not to discourage you, but a lot of times we set for these lofty uh, goals or resolutions, and then uh, come February or March, it's we've given up all hope. And so uh, do something attainable, uh, do something that um, you can slowly work towards. Uh, but one of the things I would like to encourage everyone is to um, hopefully have some type of encouragement, some type of goal, some type of desire to want to be in God's word more, to be in prayer more, um, to give more, to serve more and ultimately live our lives in accordance to God's word more and more each day. And so um, I know we hear a lot of uh, 2020 is gone. No one's allowed to talk about it again. Uh, move forward to 2021. Um, the only thing that separates 2020 and 2021 is a day. And so not much difference. Uh, things are still the same, but um, maybe that will help even though uh, it's not much different. It will help us uh, be more encouraged that the year that year is over with and we can be encouraged moving forward and um, be more positive and hopefully things will uh, get better and the worst is behind us. At least that is the hope. But we all know as believers um, that none of this is meaningful. None of this matters. None of this um, even uh, becomes something of importance to us as believers without Jesus Christ. And so how amazing it is um, celebrating his birth and looking forward to uh, his resurrection um, coming in just a few short months. And so uh, keep that in mind and keep that in your prayers and in your line of sight. Um, we are continuing our time together in Romans chapter 1. We went through a pretty hard uh, couple of verses last week. I hope um, that my uh, message, my commentary on those verses were helpful to you um, in understanding, not only understanding, but encouraging you and um, being able to uh, see how we can uh, function, uh, how we live daily um, amongst those who are uh, or claim to be part of the uh, homosexual uh, platform and lifestyle. Um, if you have any questions on that, please do not hesitate to uh, contact me. Um, but we are moving on um, to the last section of chapter uh, one in Romans. Um, hopefully that's encouraging to you. I know we've been slowly moving through it, but there's a lot in here. Um, and 
up to this point, Paul has done such uh, an amazing job really laying out for us um, just all the details, um, all of the desires that God has for us, and then how uh, us as believers, as uh, Christians, are to understand um, the world and the lost as we look upon it, because a lot of times it is... um, hard for us to really wrap our minds around some of the things that we see going on. And so if you are just joining us uh, in our journey through Romans, I encourage you to go back and listen to the previous sermons um, and uh, hopefully catch up. If not, that's okay. Uh, But we are going to be concluding chapter one um, this morning. Um, So before we go any further, let me pray and then we will get into our text for this morning. Lord God, thank you for all that you've given us. Thank you for our time together thus far. Lord, I pray that you would continue to use the Holy Spirit to prepare our hearts and minds, Lord God, for the hearing and teaching of your word, ultimately to submit um, to your word, to your will, above all things. Lord, may this message be of you. May our time together be of you. And may um, we put aside our bias, our emotions, and the things that cause us to cling to this world and allow your word and the Holy Spirit to impact us and change us to be more like Jesus Christ. So Lord, bless us during this time. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. And so we will be in Romans 1, verses 28 through 32. Um, I've broken that up into three sections, so to speak. And so we will get to that in a moment. But one of the things that I want us to do is to think about our current culture and society. What we see going on, not not necessarily in the whole world around us, but in our local communities, counties, states, our country. And what are the things that continue to top the news, to dominate the headlines, and the progressive um, movements that we see among uh, the people, among the culture, among our society today? One of the things that we can very easily see is how the world continues to justify sin. And one of the things that I I frequently ask myself is how do we continue, why are we continuing to move this direction? How and why are we continuing to um, explain away sin or do away with sin? We've gone to the extent of legalizing so many different things by saying, you know what, it is no longer wrong to do drugs. It is no longer wrong um, to have uh, adults and minors in sexual relationships. Um, It is becoming more and more acceptable and pressed upon um, our children um, of the LBGTQ plus community and their agenda. It's becoming more and more um, okay with 
certain parts of our society um, with violence, uh, different wrongdoings, lying, um, that if we can justify our sin by saying that uh, the sin that I committed was necessary because of X, Y, and Z, then it's okay. It's no longer a wrong doing. Now, I'm sure there are many different things that we can uh, think about or have our minds set on or things that may come to you personally, uh, maybe in recent or uh, past events, but whatever it may be, why? Why do you think those things are happening? And I think for many of us, we can come to certain conclusions, we can come to certain justifications, we can come to certain um, ideas or assumptions, right? Or for some of us, we just get dizzy even thinking about it. One of the things that I, I find and I really appreciate is how Paul lays it all out for us. As we conclude Romans chapter 1, we're looking at verses 28 through 32. Um, verse 28, there's so much in it. And I know there's been, I've been saying that about a lot of the verses here in chapter 1, but Romans chapter 1, in my opinion, is, is one of the greatest chapters in all of Scripture. Not the greatest, but one of the greatest. It just encapsulizes so much, everything from creation to the gospel to special and general revelation, the believer, the non-believer, and then election, and then looking at depravity of man. We begin to really see in detail Paul's understanding, and through Paul's understanding, God, God's ordained um, providence for each and every one of us. And I know it might be hard for us to see and as we look into these next few verses and we begin to, uh, to just really unpack why, and a lot of it is the whys as opposed to the actual sins. We've covered a lot of the sins and the different things in detail, and so I'm not going to dive too deep into those this morning but we can see how God's providence for us is so gracious, is so loving. And what a blessing it is. And it should continue to encourage us and give us the um, not only desire, uh, but see the importance of the gospel of sharing the gospel, spreading the gospel, and sharing our faith with all that we come in contact with. Before we go any further, let's get into our text, Romans, 1, chapter, um, Romans chapter 1, verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, ma uh, maliciousness. 
They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Wow. Paul gets very detailed here, and one of the things that we need to understand is he continues to explain um, this downward spiral of rejecting God and God rejecting men. Up to this point, we have seen how sinful men um, men and women are and, and how they have no excuse before God. Basically, they've turned their backs on God even though they know God. God's hand of grace has pulled back from them. God's umbrella of grace has closed away from them, and it basically has been removed, and they are given up to their what, as we learned in previous verses, their lust, lustful hearts or the lust of their hearts, ultimately because they have exchanged the truth for a lie. They've exchanged the gospel for sin. I'm going to go back and reread verses 24 um, through 27 just as a, a brief recap for us before we jump into the first part of verse 28. Verse 24 says, Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Verse 26, For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passions for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. This brings us to verse 28. Here in verse 28, Paul starts out in a very specific manner and um, I, I hope a lot of us have have heard or listened to or have gone back, if you missed it, um, our previous messages, specifically the last two, because the last two um, basically build up and give us a lot of the different things, a lot of the different detail going into Paul closing off or closing out this chapter. The first part of this verse where it says, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God reveals to us the depth in which this sin drags the unbeliever. And that's basically what we are seeing, that sin continues to pull down in this, this downward spiral. And this is something that I, many years ago, I came uh, um, to this conclusion or this almost visual understanding of God's word when it, in relation to sin. And in relation to sin, we have the believer and we have the unbeliever. And I'm going to get to that more later about 
um, sin and, and, and the function of that in relation to this passage for, for Christians and non-Christians alike. But one of the things that um, I really came to an understanding of or this visual understanding of sin is that as the believer, we are living a life, or we should be living a life honoring and acceptable to God, right? We abide in Him as He abides in us, and then our lives should reflect that, regardless of how, um, how much we fall away from God or how much we stumble, these different types of things. As a believer, a true believer, we should and are expected to function in such a way that we are abiding in Him and our desire is to honor, worship, and please God. And so as we are at that, that level of how we are living our lives on the spiritual journey as believers, we do have shortcomings. We do have sin. And when we sin, it's almost as if we, we get knocked off that path. And as we get knocked off that path, we have a decision to make. We come to the understanding of needing repentance and reconciliation with God. Needing repentance and reconciliation with God. Seeking forgiveness. Not abusing the grace and mercy that we've been given through the cross, but understanding that our love for God is stronger than our love for this sin, right? And so we get knocked off that path and we have that, that understanding of, okay, I can either repent and, re- and seek reconciliation for my shortcomings or I can continue down that path of sin. And when we get to this point, a lot of us come to some conclusion, whether it's one or the other, and either that sin continues to pull us down and we get depressed or we feel that there's no hope or we feel like, well, I've already messed up, then you know, what's the point? What's the purpose? And Satan wants to continue to drag you further down. And all that does is put you on that downward spiral of sin. Or we seek repentance, right? And restoration with God or those that we've wronged. And it lifts us back up, almost in a sense of putting us further on that spiritual journey, on that spiritual path. Why? Because we have what? Learned from our mistake. We seek God's forgiveness, we receive his grace, we understand his mercy, and in and through that we grow, right? God uses the broken, God heals the broken and the hurting. But a lot of times the brokenness and the hurting is because of our own affliction. And so we can either on that path get knocked down and get back up or get knocked down and continue with the attitude of whatever it may be, fill in the blank, I'm not worthy, there's no hope, I don't care, what's the point, nobody loves me, and we continue down that downward spiral. See, for the Christian, there's always that hope. There's always that hand reaching down to pull you up just as Peter stepped out of the boat into the crashing waves to walk out to Christ, and then he sank because he took his eyes off Christ and Jesus reached down and pulled him up. There's always that hand that God has there to pull us out of our sin if we choose to repent, to seek reconciliation for our wrongdoings, for our sin and shortcomings. That is always there. We don't need to 
go and, and dig in and, and really trying to fully understand the prodigal son, but understanding that as we fall away, if we are true believers, we are true Christians, we are true followers of Jesus Christ, God will never leave us nor forsake us. But see, it's very different from the unbeliever. They're not on the spiritual journey, path. They're non-believers. And as they continue down this downward spiral of sin, God's umbrella of grace, God's hand of grace limits that. It, he suppresses that. He, 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 there's almost like a, uh, this last hope or desire that, um, you know, that you are chosen, that you will be saved. But we see here in Romans 1 of those who are not. We saw in previous verses, previous messages, that that, uh, that hand of grace has been pulled back and that as that hand is pulled back, God has like completely abandoned the unbeliever because the unbeliever has completely abandoned God and they've completely turned their back on God. They begin that downward spiral faster than ever. I hope that, under, that helps you understand a little bit more um, as opposed to confuse you. But now we see that next level of sin. Why? Because they've exchanged the truth for a lie. They've exchanged the gospel for sin. Right here in verse 28 says, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God. Now, for at first glance, we can look at this and say, okay, we see God in general revelation, or maybe the gospel has been presented to us through special revelation, and we've talked about that in previous messages. And so then even though God is presented to me, I fail to acknowledge him. It goes much deeper than that. This see fit to acknowledge God, or it can be um, reworded into, or they refuse to keep in mind, depending on the translation you have, it, it, it differentiates, okay? But don't get it confused, okay? The true knowledge about God, right? They, they fail to keep in their mind the true knowledge about God, because even though um, we see this here. We saw it in a previous verses, like even though they knew God, they don't know God, right? Or they didn't um, submit to his, uh, his words, his commands, his laws. Basically, this means um, for them that they are rejecting something. They're rejecting something that is, 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 has been tried and tested, that is true, that is factual, um, that is reality, they're rejecting reality. They're rejecting the truth. They're rejecting something that is concrete, that is proven. This is basically what this is, Paul is saying here in this first part of verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, okay? Because they did not see fit, because they refused to keep in their mind the true knowledge about God. They're rejecting him. Now, we're going to take this even further because there's far more in this first part of verse 28 than what we see at first glance, okay? Paul is basically saying that they know of God, but now they refuse to acknowledge God. You can know of something, 
but not acknowledge it. Have you ever done that? Have you ever want to block something out, right? Not acknowledge it. Parents, we have this superhero gift of ignoring the noise of the children, right? Ignoring little conflicts, little bitter spats between the children, right? Um, some parents have that, that quote-unquote superhero gift uh, more than others. It's, it's very strong in some, so to speak, um, and it's something that I, I, uh, I pay close attention to, not by my own desire, but just something that um, I notice with certain parents and their children in public and it's, uh, you know, even to the extent of the child um, yelling and tugging on mom's clothing in a store, and mom continues on with her, uh, her normal function as if there's nothing going on, right? There's this almost super uh, human strength when it comes to this, you know, I know my child is there. I know my child wants something. I know they're trying to get my attention, but I am not going to acknowledge what they're doing, right? In a, in a sense, it's almost the same way with these sinners. They know God's there. They know God's trying to get their attention. They, they, they've, been, they've seen these things. They've been told these things, but they refuse to acknowledge God. But why? We'll get to that in a moment. Um, as I said before, this is gonna, Paul's going to continue to show us why they keep going to deeper and deeper depths of sin. This verse gives us a very deep... Now, I'm going to transition a little bit, but hopefully this gives us some understanding. This verse really begins to outline and gives us a deeper understanding on why unbelievers, right, cling to such things as um, evolution. Cling to such things that uh, deny God. Cling to such things as to uh, trying to disprove that there is an existence of God. Why? Because they no longer acknowledge him. They don't want to. They don't want any presence of him even anywhere. They don't want to see him. They don't want to have anything around them in this world to exist that points towards God. Why do you think scientists, philosophers, false teachers, all these different great minds, quote-unquote, continue to push away from God or continue down the path of trying to disprove that there is a God. The reason lies not in their intellect, but in their will. Their will is to disprove God. Why? Because they don't want anything to do with God, because anything to do with God convicts them of their sin. And they are no longer convicted of their sin. They are no longer see any wrongdoing of what they are participating in, what they are doing to themselves or to others. They no longer want to keep or acknowledge God in any way, shape, or form. 
all is lost. Do you see it? Do you see it in the world around you? Co-workers, classmates, professors. Because the evidence for evolution is not overwhelming at all. If anything, it takes more faith to believe in such a theory as evolution. See, the thing is, is it's not because of facts. It's not because of the evidence that people believe in such a thing as evolution. It's because of their desire, their will. The thing is, ultimately, they're compelled to accept it. Why? Because if you accept evolution, then you deny creation. If you accept evolution then you deny creation. And this leads us to the next part of this verse. So it goes from, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, so as they're trying to completely do away with God in anything and everything whatsoever, God gave them up to a debased mind. God gave them up to a debased mind. We see for the third time, God gave them up. We can also translate it in, or some of your, your translations, depending on what, which one you have as far as your Bible, God gave them over. Either way, it's the same rendering. It's the same meaning. One may flow off the tongue better than the other. It doesn't matter. So what did God give them over to this time? This time he gave them over to a debased mind. Debased or depraved depraved, okay, Um, total depravity. Some of you may be familiar with this, with the Calvinistic viewpoints, Um, but a depraved mind. um, In your translations, it it may be a little different, but in my definition here, I'm going to show you the the Greek root word that it comes from and then the many different um, words that help define this. Should be up, there you go. Debased or depraved in the Greek, it's adokimos, adokimos, means reprobate, worthless, corrupted, perverted, unapproved, unworthy, not being in accordance with what is right, not passing the test. Now, some define it as this, right? Um, when uh, people mine for gold and as they mine gold and they get this precious metal, then they take it to be what? To be tested. They want to see the purity of the gold that they have found. Okay? So what they do is they take uh, a bunch of the, the gold flakes or nuggets that they have and then they melt them down. And as they put it in the heat and it melts down, all the impurities rise to the top. And as all the impurities rise to the top, those impurities are cleaned off, right? And then they begin to test how much of that weight is impure, right? So it tells you if your gold is 90%, 80%, 97%, 99%. So you can see without melting down all your gold that it's 90% pure, So 10% of the weight that you have of your gold is impurities. 
based off a sample, right? But this is how gold is done. One of the things that this is a reference to is our faith as Christians. We are a precious metal. God continues to put the fire to us, ultimately to expose, to remove the impurities in our lives. You ever felt that way? Felt the stresses of the world? Felt the pressures? Felt the weights of certain things pressing upon you? Convictions? Convictions within that won't go away? That won't be quiet. One of the things over this past week um, I struggled with is I struggled with this section of this, this passage for quite some time. Actually, yesterday I, I spent twice the amount of time um, in study and in the Word and, and in processing just because uh, I, I felt that I wasn't doing or I wasn't articulating this in the right way. I want to make sure I do that. And so in a sense, there, there was something within me unsatisfied, right? And I needed to, to, to work on it. I needed to satisfy that, that conviction within me by the Holy Spirit. And God does the same thing to each and every one of us, whether it's sin in our lives, the way we've treated someone, something that we've done, uh, lied or cheated, or we're, we just live in a lifestyle of wrongdoing, um, it can be many, many different things, different convictions that the Holy Spirit continues to prick our heart on, and God is trying to ultimately hold our feet to the fire so the impurities rise to the top and they are dealt with. But with the unbeliever, when they are held to the fire, the majority, if not all, are impure. And with the metals that are thought to be precious, end up to be fool's gold and are thrown out and are worthless, have no value whatsoever. In a sense, this word debased, depraved, adukimos, adikimos, is to put to the test and to, to and basically, it has no worth. And since it has no worth, it is thrown out. It is thrown out. It is unapproved. It is unworthy. It is not being in accordance with what is right. It does not pass the tests. Basically, this is a mind that is incapable of moral or ethical discernment. A total depraved mind is something that has absolutely no conscience left within to, to, to make moral discerning choices, decisions. They don't care. It doesn't matter. They can do wrongdoing, commit sin without any, any hesitation, any conviction, any remorse. Paul describes this mind as hostile to God and unable to submit to God's law. Turn with me to Romans chapter 8. Now, I know I'm jumping ahead, but by the time we get to Romans chapter 8, you're going to forget this message anyways, so I'm not too worried about using it in our, my message this morning. Romans chapter 8, verse 7, and I'm not going to elaborate too much, but this continues to support 
what Paul is teaching on and what God is trying to communicate and articulate to each and every one of us. Romans chapter 8, verse 7. Now, you can go in and read more of Romans chapter 8. There's a lot in here, but I'm going to just pluck out verse 7 for us for this morning. And it says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. It can't. It can't. You would think that at some point that the lost would enter into a a path that is so destructive, so hurtful, so self-afflicting, so dark that they would see this is not okay. I shouldn't be doing this. But as we talked about culture and society, if culture and society tells them it's okay and encourages them on, and we're gonna, I'm going to elaborate on that towards the end of the message, there's not even any outside influence to try to poke and prod and push someone that direction. Basically, we can see how destructive and dark they have become. And Romans chapter 8, verse 7, as we see, makes it very, very clear. God is no longer real to them. They will say that they don't believe in God. God does not exist. As I always say, it takes more faith to believe that there is no God and God does not exist than it is to believe in God. Any mention of God triggers a reaction of sin and a motivation to blot out God in all things. You ever encounter that? One of the things that I've challenged and have encouraged some of our uh, college students in the past is to carry their Bible in their hand while they're walking around campus from class to class just to see what just that very act of carrying around God's word incites God is no longer real to these individuals. God has given their minds over to a total depraved, debased mindset. All is lost. Does this sound familiar? Does this look like anything today? One of the things that is interesting is that we can even see today some of this among Christians, or I guess I should say those who think that they are Christians. We call them carnal Christians. Those who call themselves believers but live according to the flesh. Carnal Christianity. Those that call themselves Christians but live according to the flesh. The thing is, is that there should be no no relation, no overlap, nothing familiar in the Christian Christian's life or lifestyle that reflects anything of a total depraved mindset of the individuals that Paul is discussing and articulating and depicting to us here in Romans chapter 1. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Verse 14 says the natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God. 
for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them, because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. If someone calls themselves a Christian but is living in sin, as believers, we need to, what? Confront them. Not in a way of a law enforcement, not in the way of someone of disgust, but in a way of someone that is loving, in the way that Christ, Christ does. If we want to know how Christ confronts sin, go in and look at Scripture. How does Christ confront sin amongst the religious people of the time? He doesn't beat around the bush. His parables that he tells and he gives are those of unbelievers. But the ones of the religious, he's very clear very black and white. And he doesn't hold anything back. This should not be the mindset of anyone that is of the church. But at the end of this verse, Paul begins to help us see and begins to transition um, that we can maybe at some point truly understand the depth of sin that is taking place. Now, I want us to understand as we continue on in our passage this morning that it all starts going back to verse 24. And then in verse 24, it starts out, therefore, right? So we can go back even further. So almost as a sense that, Romans chapter 1 needs to be read all together and studied all together and understood all together, but obviously we don't have that amount of time to do that in one sitting. But we must, we must not forget to hold each and every one of these verses in Romans chapter 1 in its what? In its necessary context in the necessary form, in the necessary flow that it should be. But Paul begins to help us truly see the depths of sin in the fully released, fully abandoned, depraved mindset of the non-believer. This brings us to verses 29 Verse 29 says, They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Paul now gives us a long list of other sins that are beyond the vile and grotesque 
things that we uh, that he spoke of in verses 26 and 27. Um, Paul is known to give these types of lists. He gives them quite frequently throughout many of his writings. This is how the believer should live. This is how the believer should not live. This is how heathens live. This is how non-believers live. And he gives us these practical um, lists that we can see very clearly. And it's almost as if he lists difficult ones or very harsh sins or very um, deep sins. And some of us begin to think at some point in time, it's like, okay, that's not me. That's not me. I'm doing good. But then he goes into ones that are more general, more practical, uh, more uh, everyday sins. And it's like, okay, I didn't escape this list that Paul has. Like I said, we shouldn't be able to, we should not relate to, we should not have an essence of, we should not have any part of our being in relation to these lists of the total depraved minds of these sinners. The interesting thing here is that amongst these lists, before we get into that, Paul tops them off with this. They were filled with all manner. They were filled with all manner. They were filled with all manner. Paul is um, notorious for using such verbiage as saying all, all of, everything. So we can't escape it. We can't explain it away. When he means all, it's all, and it's everyone, it's everyone. These lists are not exhaustive, but they really prick the hearts, they prick the the Holy Spirit within us to convict us of how we live our lives. But we must remember that these sins are sins that are now what? They define these people. These sins define the people that are total, that have total depravity of the mind. This is what we need to understand. This is what we need to be able to differentiate from our own lives and the lives of the people that Paul is speaking of here in this scripture. We need to completely see, or not completely see, but completely understand that they've been abandoned. They've abandoned God and God has abandoned them. We cannot apply this to the believer's life. I don't want us to be discouraged. I don't want us to feel in some way that's like, wow, I, 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 sometimes I have deceit, deceit among, amongst me, within me. Sometimes I have strife. Sometimes I'm slanderous. Sometimes I'm, I'm this or sometimes I'm that. And, and, and wow, I, am I lost? Am I not saved? No, but you, right now, what, hap, what is happening is you're having conviction and that conviction is saying, hey, you shouldn't have those things. So what are you going to do about it? It's that downward spiral of you're on your spiritual journey, you're on that path, and you realize like, wow, I I have some of that, and that's sin. What is the choice I'm going to make once I'm confronted with sin? Once I realize I have sin in my life, are we going to repent, seek restoration, or are we going to allow Satan to have that foothold in our lives and pull us further and further down as opposed to rising up. 
one of the things that I hope we begin to see is that these sins define these people that Paul is talking about. They should not define you. This is habitual sin. This is sin that makes up these people. This is their everyday lives. This is how they live their lives. We're going to get into a little bit more in a minute as we're going to break down these sins. I'm not going to look at each individual sin in particular and break that down. We, we don't need to do that. Um, we've, done it bef- we've done it before. We've looked at them before. Um, we don't need to keep going back to it. But we're going to do it in a way as like, uh, okay, Paul mentions these sins as part of this grouping and this grouping and this grouping, and here's why. But before we do that, let's turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Everything that is contrary to sound doctrine. What we need to understand is the laws exist for the unbeliever. And this is where Christians are carnal Christians more than Christians, I believe, get it confused. Like, okay, the law doesn't apply to me, Scripture says. Especially if you go and look at Hebrews, it's really big on that because it's meant for the Jewish people, the, the converts, right, from, the, from, Jew, from, from Judaism to Christianity. But see, here's the thing. We need to understand, yes, the laws don't apply to us because the laws are meant to expose our sin. Law is meant to expose your sin. As a believer, we know we are sinners. Our sin has been exposed. Therefore, we, what? As God begins to transform and renew us, we seek him, we seek Christ, Calvary, what was done on the cross through repentance. We repent of our sins. So we understand that we are sinners because we cannot understand we need a savior until we understand that we are sinners. Right? As I've said before, there's no such thing as good news without bad news. And we must understand the bad news to understand the good news. And then through this, we see that the law is to reveal sin. It's to prick the moral conscience um, that the sinner, the non-believer, right? Um, in a sense, God is trying to get their attention. But now we can see how... Uh, how men or how our society, how our culture is trying to do away with these laws, right? Ultimately to do away with sin. Ultimately to do away with sin. The dark list that Paul um, seems to give here, we're going to look at three different groups momentarily, but one of the things that we need to understand is these laws aren't necessarily for us to focus on. Why? Because we understand that we are sinners. We are exposed to sin. 
As believers, we are free from the law, not so we can go and do whatever we want, because our lives now belong to God. So the understanding is, because we love God, what? We submit to his law and his rule, right? To worship him, to do his will and not our own. But see, the thing is, is that we fail, we stumble, right? And therefore, a lot of times we have to come back to God's word and his rule, his law, these things of understanding what is sin and what is not exposes these things within us and convict us again, convict us all over again, and should lead us to repentance. Essentially, the law doesn't save you, but it's to reveal the sin. And in those that are totally depraved, they reject it. They refuse it. There's almost a sense of no moral integrity within them whatsoever. The conscience, in a sense, is dead to anything in relation to God. Now, I'm going to briefly break down some of these, and then we'll come back to um, some of the things that I've mentioned briefly up to this point. Um, There are these three almost... Uh, categories or groupings of sin that uh, Paul lists here. The first four uh, sins or first four vices, in a sense, um, are all quite general, okay? And it's, it's right here where it says, they were filled with all manner of, and unrighteousness is the first one, okay? But we continue on, it says, they're all filled with, they're filled with all manner of unrighteousness. We're filled with all manner of evil, all manner of covetousness, all manner of malice. These are very general forms or general terms of sin, right? They are coming to. Now, the next five are all related to envy, to envy and envy's consequences. The next five. And what are the next five? Okay. It says, they are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. So envy is essentially almost like the topic. And because of envy and because of covetousness, people murder. There's strife. There's deceit. There's malicious intent because of envy, because of covetousness. We don't have to look through much of Scripture, to see how envy and covetousness pushes people to very evil things, very sinful things. The final grouping um, is uh, basically 12 sins, 12 vices. Um, They're all basically in a form of an accusation, but they include a variety of basically... um, pagan delights, so to speak, things that are very natural to the heathen, very natural to the unbeliever that are basically part of almost their everyday life. And it says here, they are gossips. So we see the transition from things very heavy, very hard to things that are very commonplace, gossip, slander, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. 
foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. And it ends there. One of the things that really, or two of the things that really stick out to me is haters of God and inventors of evil. They're haters of God and inventors of evil. It's almost as if they're trying, they hate God so much, they, they almost have this uh, brainstorming, so to speak, of what can I do that would upset God, that would anger God, that would go against everything of his very nature to just really mess him up. And for some reason, they think they can do that, but they're inventors of evil, that they, they're so disgusted of the idea of God that they need to do anything and everything that they can to push back against him. They've gone beyond trying to just disprove him to reject him, but they need to show as if almost they're in control, that they're in power. Sound familiar? We must remember that it all started out as an abomination, as a rejection, as an exchange, truth for a lie, the gospel for sin. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to start at verse 17. Stay at Ephesians chapter 4 until we move on to uh, to Romans 1.32, okay? So just stay here. Um, Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy, to practice every kind of impurity. Greedy to practice every kind of impurity because of the darkness of their, of their minds and the hardness of their hearts. They seek out to do everything everything that is contrary to God's word. Thing is, is we need to understand that Christians should not live this way, should not have any inclination, any desire, right? We shouldn't. But do we? Yes, we do. It happens. And again, are we going to continue down that downward spiral? The depths of sin? Or are we going to seek repentance and restoration with God? Let's look at verse 20. I know I stopped at 19, but I want to look at verse 20. 
before we move on, it says, but that is not the way you learned Christ. But that is not the way you learned Christ. We have to understand that there are times, and right here we see it, it's like, look, I'm talking to all believers. This is how the heathen lives. This is how non-believers live. This is why they do what they do. You shouldn't do that. There's no reason as to why you do that. You shouldn't. As Paul said, I don't know why I do what I do, but I keep on doing it. I know I shouldn't do it, but I, I do. Paul had his struggles as well, just like I do, just like you do. We all have our struggles, but the thing is, is are we going to come to the conclusion that, you know what, I'm not living the life that God has called me to live. There's areas in my life that I have not fully relinquished control from, that I have not fully given over to God, that I have not fully come to repentance and reconciliation, and I need to do that. Why? Because it continues to pull and drag me down. As believers, we need to cling to this. Why? Because the non-believers, those that have a depravity of their mind, have a willful rejection of God's divine revelation. Believers do not. We do not have a willful rejection of God's divine revelation. We have, a, we have an understanding that we've been saved by God's will, God's grace. Not only we accept it, we embrace it. But this willful rejection of divine revelation by the, un, by the unbeliever, by the, the, the total depravity of these individuals, hardens the heart to the point where the sinner, where they cannot, they cannot do anything to please God, to honor God. Not only that, they've come to the point to where they want to encourage, entice, join in, unite non-believers, those that are in sin, and they want to be part of that, and they want to organize part of that. As they say, misery loves company, well, so does sin. Sinners love to have other sinners join them. Sinners love to have non-sinners join them. It's almost like a, a, a trophy they can put up on their pedestal of an, an accomplishment of wrongdoing. You know, oh, I'm going to give it to God and show him, right? That's how debased the mind is. That's how bad it is. Have you ever been in a conversation as that? Have you ever encountered people with this understanding where they take delight in the sinning of others. Be aware. Be warned. This is why it is so important for us to know and understand who we are spending time with, who we are friends with. Let's move on. Verse 32. Verse 32, our last verse of this passage, it says, Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval 
to those who practice them. Sin breeds sin, and sin is death. Not only do they understand that the judgment on their lives because of where they've completely turned their back on God, how they're living is death, they don't care. I've even heard someone say, well, I'm just going to see how many people I can drag down with me. Uh, that's a comment that I've received before in, in a discussion. It is mind-blowing to me that they know this, that their verdict is death, and they continue to rationalize and legalize their sins. This is why a lot of pastors and Christian friends of mine believe, you know what, we need to be very involved in uh, voting processes. Some may feel that it's necessary, some may not, um, but essentially, as our world continues to pull more and more away from God, we're going to see more and more acceptance, right, of sin, of sin. There's so much out there now, and there's so much beginning to take place. Um, there are so many things that even went into law um, as of January 1, just a couple of days ago, um, that five years ago, ten years ago, we would have never fathomed these things to be part of law that would be legal here in, in America. I don't want to get into that discussion right now or, or go off on a tangent, um, but basically we need to understand that they continue to indulge themselves in all forms of ungodliness. And not only do they indulge themselves, they desire to, to pull others in and to pull others down and to lead astray. The thing is, is that as Christians, some of us are so naive to believe that we're influencing others, but in a sense, we're the ones being influenced. We're the ones being drugged down. And we're not really lifting anyone up. Turn me to 1 John chapter 3. I don't think I have it up there. I apologize. Um, this is something I added later. 1 John chapter 3, verse 6. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous. Sounds very simple, right? Very easy to understand. Okay? Very plain. And he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. 
Did we get that? Verse 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. It is so easy, so simple, but we complicate it. Why? Because we want to justify others' sins. We, we don't like this passage when it comes to people that we love that live in sin. We don't like it. We don't want to hear it. We don't want to talk about it. We don't want it preached. We don't want it taught. We don't want it broken down for us. Why? Because one thing we need to understand is there are things that are within us that we love more than God. And this strikes at the very core of that, at the very heart of that, that we need to understand there are things in your life that you love more than God, and it shouldn't be that way. It's convicting. It shouldn't make you angry. It should be convicting. Anger implies a rejection of God. Don't get it confused. Don't get the emotion confused because there are times that there are things in God's word that convicts me, but I don't know it convicts me until I'm of a right frame of mind because my reaction is anger or frustration or being upset, but that doesn't define me. That's that moment of emotion that is sparked at that time, but then when I calm down or I get control of my emotions, I see God is convicting me through this, and therefore I need to act on that conviction. Because if we don't act on the convictions that God gives us in and through his word and the Holy Spirit, that is sin within itself. Because then we are now disobedient to what? To what the Holy Spirit is trying to do within us. And what is that? That's God's will. The Holy Spirit wants us to do something about something, and we deny it, and we snuff it, or we put it away Therefore, we are not doing God's will. We have to understand that those that are righteous are going to do righteous things. We're going to do things of the Lord. This is not perfection. This is not a sinless life, right? I've taught on that before. We don't get to fully experience that until glorification, which is in heaven with God, where we, we are perfected. But positionally here on this earth, we are righteous. We are perfect in the eyes of God, but we do make mistakes. We do have shortcomings. We do have sin. But then that's that path, that journey that we are on. And as we are knocked down, we can make that choice. Repent, restore, or continue to be pushed down. Just as I said before, we know the saying, misery loves company. So does sin. And ultimately, in and through all of this, this renders an eternal separation from God an eternal separation 
from God. This should do a couple of things. One, warn us as believers, convict us, prick us to stir up within us to be right with God and to deal with the sins in our own lives. Two, light a fire under our feet, essentially, to be more vocal with the gospel, more forthcoming with our faith, and to not be ashamed. We're going to close with this in Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And I want us to all remember, especially this message, and, or if not the message, this passage, or even Romans chapter 1, the next time someone tries to reject God, reject creation, manipulate His Word, manipulate the law, remember what God says about all of these things, so that we are not discouraged. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 says, And you are dead in the, trespass, in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. One of the things we need to understand, and we need to have a healthy viewpoint of, is we once were lost too. And our love for the lost should be not one of judgment and condemnation. That's God's job. But our view of the lost should be one of love, a desire for the gospel, grace, mercy, but never in the way of compromise. Never in the way of watering down. Never in the way of exchanging the truth with a lie. So stand firm. Don't be afraid. Live for Christ and abide in Him as He abides in you. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for all that you've given us. Thank you for our time together this morning. And ultimately, thank you for Jesus Christ, your son. Thank you for your word. May it continue to live within us, to convict us, to draw us closer to you. We pray all this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.